Hello, welcome to today's episode of the German New Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Sell, and I am joined again today by my partner, Steve. Hello. And our conversation today is about getting into rapport, getting into harmony with your biological self. And the focus is on beliefs and how your beliefs shape so much about your experience. So part of this getting into rapport, getting into harmony with your biological self, with this whole thing, this mind-body experience connection that we have and this communication that's always going on to our biological tissues. So I think a big part of that and one of the amazing things about learning the five biological laws and learning German New Medicine is you just get to know yourself on a different level. Levels that you didn't even really know that you had. We didn't really realize we were communicating with ourselves. We didn't realize we were communicating with these ancient parts of our body. But now that we know that, now that we are elevating our awareness, now that we know the five biological laws, now that we know that these conflict shocks, these experiences, these traumatic things that catch us off guard throughout our lives, lives, that is what initiates a need to adapt. That's what sends a signal, sends a message to an ancient part of our biology that says, ooh, something's wrong. Something is amiss. We need to make adaptations. We need to help them get through this situation. And so something that's such an interesting thing to keep in mind is, so if we were like animals are, and thinking about ourselves in this biological sense is so important when you're learning GNM because animals get over stuff really quickly. Animals have conflicts, have issues, but as soon as the immediate physical thing is over, they're not dwelling on it. They're not perseverating on it. They're not thinking about it. They're not stressing over it. They're not waiting for it to happen again. They're not worried. They just respond. Their body, you know, they react. Their body responds accordingly. They get over it. Issues done, done and over with. But the thing about us is our complex minds and our ability to think about things after something happens. So we have the conflict shock and we know that that's the initiator, that's the moment. But if we just got over whatever the initial conflict was, if we just moved on, the adaptations would be so minor and the healing phase would be relatively minor that we would kind of go on. We wouldn't have any major major illnesses, major diseases, major sicknesses. Everything would just kind of go as per usual with little hiccups along the way, which are to be expected. Um, but the problem is when we have a conflict and what happens is we establish in that moment, in that split second, uh, patterns of thought are established and meanings are assigned and beliefs, and that's what we're talking about today, beliefs are established. Things that you now believe because this one thing happened in this moment, you are now in an active and ongoing process of believing certain things about yourself, about the world, about money, about other people, about your body, about your health, about all sorts of different things. And these beliefs, when we establish them in times of crisis, 
when we decide, okay, we now forever are going to believe a certain thing because a tragedy, because a terrible thing happened to us at one point in time, if we never look at those beliefs in the light of conscious awareness and decide if those beliefs are worth continuing to believe, if they're contributing to improving what it's like to be us, or if they're causing us to be in a holding pattern of adaptation that's keeping a conflict that should have been resolved a long time ago, keeping it alive, either in the sense of you're in conflict activity and it was such a strong conflict that you have not resolved it, that you've been conflict active, you've had a hanging conflict for years and years and years, or say you'll go through periods of resolving it and you'll, you'll get into healing, but then you're reactivated in the conflict and then you have a hanging healing. Um, those, those situations, you have to become aware of what is it that's triggering? What is it that is causing you? What beliefs are active that are causing you to remain in a state of, I'm not okay, I need to adapt. And so becoming aware of what you believe is such a powerful way to overcome conflicts, to resolve conflicts, and to really just feel better overall. Even if, say, this isn't a belief that's contributing to an ongoing active adaptation process in your body, but it's kind of creating bad results for you in other areas of your life. They, every belief that you hold has a logical con- consequence. It has an impact on either directly your biology, your physiology, or stuff in your life. What you believe it matters. What you think about matters. And, you know, that's a big part of the work that Steve and I do is teaching people about thought, the power of thought and belief. Um, A lot of people do believe that their, you know, thoughts are powerful, but then they don't really know how to change them. So we want to kind of dig in and talk about some different aspects of beliefs today. It's interesting when you're talking about the differences between, um, what was it, just the conflict would happen and it would resolve versus, you know, this ongoing kind of thing that's unique to human beings. It's sort of like the difference between if you flip the fly, the fire switch in a building. Like, you know, if you flip that switch, the sprinklers come on. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's not like the sprinklers shouldn't be coming on. It's like the, the, the sprinklers are intended to come on when the flip the switch gets flipped. Um, but how long you leave them on. Like, let's say that you flipped them by accident, which is to say, like, let's say that you experienced a conflict. Or that this, you know, you were startled or disturbed or perturbed or shocked in some way about, by something that wasn't actually life-threatening, say. Um, the the quicker you you know resolve that thing, the quicker you say, oh, it was a mistake. Let's turn the sprinkler off. Versus you know if you keep it going over and over and over again, keep reliving it, keep re-experiencing it. It's like you leave those sprinklers on. Think about the damage to the building, right? And it's not that the the sprinkler. It's not that the it's a, it's not that it's an error in the in the building's response system that has the sprinklers on. But you know the, the building in a sense is responding appropriately, and the sprinklers would be better off turned off. Isn't that interesting? And so I think that's one of those kind of like distinctions. It's so easy to overlook between what's the difference between this and normal medicine and alternative medicine and all that stuff is that like the body is responding appropriately to signals that you uh, don't want to be sending. Right? And so it's a, it's a matter of changing the communication with the body rather than trying to coerce the body to change its response to the communication that you don't want to, don't intend to, and aren't aware that you're communicating to it. Is that, is that pretty good? Yeah, I think that is good. And and I think just recognizing and kind of relating to it in that capacity is a pretty useful thing. And, and the rapidity with which, that you you know, you can turn off those sprinklers when you realize that they've been turned on. And it's that difference, too, between, like, think about the average person's sort of maybe relationship with their mother-in-law versus 
and animals, you know, like if you see two dogs, you know, who, who are playing and they get into a scuffle, it's like if one dog sort of bites the other dog or asserts dominance over the other dog or whatever, usually that resolves itself pretty quickly. And the other dog doesn't worry about that in an ongoing way. I mean, if there's like ongoing intimidation, that's a difference. But but that that dog, there's no evidence to suggest that it plays in its mind over and over and over again. Like, for example, it might get nervous when that other dog comes around, but it doesn't lose sleep at nighttime over mm. the fact that the other dog's not there for the most part, mm-hmm. you know, um, and versus a human being. I mean, we th- I mean, you know, even if a dog does do those things, it's safe to say probably they don't, they don't ruminate over things that are negative like that to the degree that human beings do. Because, I mean, I know myself, I occasionally will, say, laying in bed at night, not often, but if I'm kind of a wonky state or whatever, I, I will r- bring up to mind instances of embarrassment or mortification from, like, <laughs> ultra early life, like, you know, two, three, four, kindergarten. Oh, I can't believe I said that. And there's a physiological response in, in within me that that activates that. And it's like, God, you can just tell that that you know is it is it good to be able to remember stuff that that acutely? Well, probably. I mean, it certainly helps planning. It certainly helps. I mean, I, I have a grasp of reality that I wouldn't have if I didn't have such a kind of sensitive recording of facts of reality that have happened. But at the same time, is it possible that there are consequences to being able to get myself to feel bad about something that is like personal ancient history? Uh, probably so. And so I think getting control of that instrument really is what we're talking about. And in terms of belief formation, in terms of resourceful thinking and all that stuff, I mean, just to kind of, again, reiterate this whole thing that what it's like to be you matters. Um, and it matters in terms of your physical well-being, right? Because your physical body, your, your, your organism is sort of responding to what it is like to be you. And it, you, you, it, it's not that your body's going to get sick if your experience is sick. That's not it. It's that what your experience is, what it is, it constitutes a communication. It's telling your body something about the environment in which your body is existing. or That's what your body thinks anyway, right? And so if your experience is one, particularly if we're talking about intense things, you know, these intense kind of traumatic experiences... Um, that your body is responding to that experience constantly. You know what I mean? And it's like if it's you, you may not want your body responding to that experience because for in a lot of cases, what we term you know illness is, and, and also even terminal illness, what, what we call that, that is the body's response to a particular experience, right? That's the, that's the body making, it makes sense to the body to respond that way given what the body is interpreting your experience to mean. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes very important to to monitor what the quality of that experience is. And something interesting to me too about the fact though that it's not self-evident that what it's like to be you is hugely important. Um, I mean, it, it would think that that in and of itself is because if you want to be healthy, if you want to survive, if you want to go on living, if you care about the fact that you have been diagnosed with something life-threatening, you probably care about that because of that diagnosis's ability to either negatively affect or end, you know, your capacity as a conscious being and creature to have experiences that are worth having. Mm-hmm. And so it's a funny thing to kind of, for a lot of people, they don't really care, don't really care about what it's like to be them until they realize that what it's like to be them is influencing and affecting their health. But the interesting thing is that most people value and care about their health because 
being healthy is a prerequisite for having a good quality conscious experience of what it's like to be them. And well, I got to be there for my kids. Well, why do you care about that? Well, because you want your kids what it's like to be them. You don't want that to comprise losing their mother, losing their father, losing their who, you know. And so it's an interesting thing kind of coming full circle, like of reconciling experience and reality, you know, and recognizing the reality that your experience is a part of reality and it's influencing and it's not a one-way street. It's not, oh, I have a physical thing called cancer and therefore my experience is suffering. There's a, it, it doesn't just flow in one direction, right? That there's this kind of back and forth flow and exchange between physical reality. So your body and your health is measured on diagnostic tests and the equality of your experience. It goes back and forth in both directions. And since sometimes, I mean, for us, the window to influencing one versus the other, it's like you influence your experience and elicit changes in response from your, from your physical body. And beliefs are a huge component of doing that, I think. One, because you have to start getting, you know, you have to at least have the flexibility or the imagination to believe this might be true or the ability to, say, think that this might be true without full-on believing it already. You have to have that ability to be able to relate to this new information, to be able mm-hmm. to try this new information on, to be able to to give it a fair shake. Do you know what I'm saying? To evaluate what the effect of thinking these thoughts in something other than a non-dismissive, non dismissive non something other than a dismissive or a critical way, actually trying them on, trying them out, taking them for a test think or a test drive, you know, a test, uh, testing out these thoughts and see how they experience, how they feel to you, um, requires a certain amount of the skill that testing them out will provide you. And so that, that's kind of an interesting conundrum we were talking about earlier, you know, is that like, what we're trying to teach people is how to relate to information. And so, you know, how do you teach people how to relate to the information you're presenting to them about how they can relate to information? It's an <laughs> interesting challenge. Yeah, and that's like um, you said earlier today that I just thought was wonderful is almost what we are trying to do and trying to get you to realize is how important your thoughts are, how important your beliefs are, this active ongoing process that is creating your experience. And that for many people seems because we are a fish in water, because we are immersed in this experience all of the time. And just to interject, sorry, just interject right there because there's something so good in that, which is that how how important your thoughts are. Pay attention as you're listening to this, what your thoughts are in response to that information because that's an example of what we're talking about here. You know, That's the wonderful thing about this is that you don't have to believe any of this stuff right away. You don't have to take it, like swallow it like a pill. It's like literally watch, like what bubbled up for you in that moment in response to what Melissa just said, that your thoughts are really, really important. Did you think to yourself, holy shit, I, that's not good if that's, I, I don't really know if I believe that's true. I don't know if I want to believe that's true because if it is, I have a lot of work to do or I'm in big trouble because I think a lot, you know, whatever it was that came up, that's a thought. That counts, right? And so that thought matters too. And that was a huge thing for me and it's, it remains a huge thing for me. And you know, in working with people, once you once you get this one, you really got it. That what you think about what you think is also what you think and that it's important too. And that sometimes improving what you think starts by improving what you think about what you think already. And sorry, but that's just a really like, you know, that that's a big one because I, so somebody is going to think something um, kind of gnarly in response to what your thoughts really matter. And it might be really useful for that person to recognize that that meta thought or thought about thought or sidebar thinking, you know, that's a thought too, that the rules apply to that. And it's amazing what what it is we're trying to do in, in getting you to think about this and getting you to 
value your thought and think about it as an important component of your health, of what it's like to be you. And we've got the job really that the medical and pharmaceutical companies have been doing for years in convincing you that there are measurable particles in your blood that could be causing problems. You know, there are these things that you can't even see. You don't even know. I mean, what is the concept to you of like cholesterol? We don't really have a uh, like a tangible like feeling of what cole- we we have images in our mind based off of um, advertising of what cholesterol is and the bad things that it can do to you or say um, uh, bacteria and viruses we've got these like images in our mind but have you ever en- encountered a cholesterol have you ever encountered a uh, a single bacteria in a dark alley. That, that made that made a difference in your life? Um, have you ever encountered a single um, virus? Not your idea, but like an actual particle that's so microscopically small, but apparently it's making a huge difference in what it's like to be you, right? And what and what? How do people relate to that stuff? Is they relate to a really rough physical experience of, you know, vomiting or congestion or, you know, fever. And so they've got a personal experience. And then someone explains to them there's this thing called the flu. That's what that is. And that's a really powerful thing, right? To to so you have that experience first and then you kind of map it linguistically or map it with words. And then those words are kind of like a map of a concept. And the concept is this little guy this little thing floating around that's going to get in your in your lungs or whatever, or it's going to there's actually something that your body is making, um, uh, manufacturing, and it's floating around in your blood vessels, um, and it's going to get you. And I think that that's that thing is that if if there were a a let's say there were a flu, um, it, the experience of the flu were exactly the same, but there was no physical cause that we could point to, like it's it, like what if you could induce the flu mentally, let's say. And we knew that that was so. We would take it less seriously. It wouldn't matter that it physically was a terrible experience. We would take it less seriously because there's something about if there's a physical cause for something and we can point to it and identify it and measure it and evaluate it, that it matters. And if we can't, then it really doesn't. I mean, it's like all, I mean, even think about what, you know, so-called mental illness until the kind of like chemical imbalance ideas and, you know, that thing came around, those things were not regarded as legitimate. Until we could make up something, we could point to something physically and say, oh, that's why it's happening. Then all of a sudden, the same experiences, the same problems were regarded almost as more illustrious, more unfortunate. More, they, you know, it wasn't that we were that we liked them more, but they carried more weight because there was something about physical reality that we could, that we could associate with. And until we can, it doesn't matter, for example, that cholesterol is not something you've got any personal history or experience with. You, you can conceptualize something physical and you say, oh, well, that must be pretty important, right? You know, and, and because experience is more nebulous, because experience is, you know, we might have some idea it's in the brain, but, you know, the mind is its own kind of universe. Um, we tend to neglect it, you know, in a way that like, I mean, that's that thing is that we've got people measuring how many, you know, parts per whatever, um, you know, LDL is in the blood, but no one is asking people for the most part to keep tabs on the quality of their thoughts. I mean, you know, how many how many resourceful thoughts are you thinking in a day? How many unresourceful thoughts are you thinking in a day? So, you know, I'm going to tell you some things about cholesterol, and over the next week, I want you to log every single time you think an unresourceful, bad feeling, or negative thought on the subject of cholesterol, because I need to evaluate whether or not you being aware of cholesterol is having a positive 
or a negative impact on your experience and what you're thinking about. No one measures that because they're thoughts. Who cares? You know what I'm saying? And it, it's like anything that's microscopic, as long as it's physical, is of interest. But if we can't really measure it in that way, it's almost inconvenient because mm-hmm. we know it might be influencing reality, but we can't say how or where or when or exactly in what way. And so the scientific you know, inquiry, because we're not competent at measuring thought at this time you know, in that way, um, it, it's just not interested in it. It's almost embarrassing. It's like, well, we'd rather not talk about that. Look over here. Look at these little things. You know. Yeah, and that's why we end up talking about some, we talk about things in a bizarre way because we talk about the things, like what is actually being communicated to a person. And I mean, I guess it's, uh, it's right now in the news in this, they are, keep talking about a flu epidemic and it's a really bad flu this year, but they're not talking about how the effect of the communication of the flu being very bad this year has on people. Why aren't we talking about the the fear factor? Why don't we talk about what what does this communicate to people to even believe, to have the notion that this is, quote, a bad flu this year? What are you thinking about the person who's coughing on the elevator next to you um, you know what I mean? It, with that, with that context, when you believe that there's a very bad flu, I saw someone shared a video on Facebook, and it was about how uh, what, what an awful person you are if you go to work when you have the flu, because there you are just spreading around this disease to all of these people, and how you know how selfish and rude and terrible and awful you are for doing such a thing, and it's like that is such a construct in that individual's mind. They have an idea about how sickness is transmitted. And they have no proof of it. They have, they only have their experience and how, and you cannot separate your idea that getting coughed on in the elevator is going to cause you to get sick and, and the actual transmission of a, of a, of a quote virus or a bacteria that's inducing sickness within you. It's easy to overlook how significant that is too, because we, and that, but that in and of itself is a, is, is, is telling why why we would be inclined to say, what do you mean what I think about it's going to matter? Like, isn't that interesting? That kind of tendency to be dismissive about that. Um, and I think it's because implicitly, because we, we talk so little about the relevance of what we think about. Um, we talk so little about the relevance of how we feel, except, of course, if being depressed, you know, in, uh, inhibits your work performance. I mean, or if being depressed makes it so that you can't walk your dog, that's a behavior it's interfering with. Now we have a problem. Um, that's that thing. So one of the criteria, I think, for sort of diagnosing whether something constitutes like an illness, a mental illness or something, is that if it interferes with what? With other areas of your life that are almost always behavioral in nature, showing up to work, meeting with friends and family. I mean, the metric is always a behavioral thing. One of the major, what's what's so bad about being depressed? Well, the things you don't do and the one really bad, naughty, not allowed thing, suicide, that you might do as a result of it. It's always this behavioral fixation, this physical uh, uh, fixation. And there's a strong implication in that, which is that the final common pathway for relevance when it comes to thinking and feeling is that it's going to manifest in behavior. And 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 no one says this necessarily, but the powerful implication is that's the real reason thoughts and feelings are are important. And, And pretty much unless it's influencing your behavior in some way or another, it doesn't really matter that much. And because we think something like 70,000 thoughts a day and we do something significantly less than 70,000 things a day in terms of tasks, we tend to think that the thoughts that aren't obviously associated with specific behaviors don't really matter that much. The feelings that we feel, I mean, if I feel terrible 
and angry or resentful or depressed on my way to work every day, but I do an excellent job and I don't behave in a way that's socially untenable or unacceptable, those bad feelings are not, not, they're not registered. They're not regarded as a problem, right? Because they're not manifesting any kind of a behavior that, that's observable by other people. And so that's just a really interesting thing why it would seem, because like I even, when you were talking about like what a person thinks about what, you know, the flu or about this other person who's sneezing in the elevator, that their thoughts, even I was thinking, well, you know, that's kind of an extreme example, but it's like, well, that's interesting. Why would I even have that, that inclination to think that way? It, it, is it, do I have any reason to, compelling evidence to believe that um, what a person thought wouldn't matter. I mean, I have so many instances in my own personal life of creating visceral physical changes, perceptual changes, uh, what basically amount to hallucinations, you know what I mean, as a result of really being convinced that something was true. And almost like when you're, like you're convinced someone's doing something you don't want them to do, or you're going to catch them in the act, or you know, something is a certain way. And like when you catch up to reality, you know, and you find that reality is exactly the opposite of what you were thinking. Do you know that glitch or that it's almost like you got to pull the emergency brakes on your experience or it's like you've got a, there's this momentum of experience sensation. I mean, I think it's cognitive dissonance is one way of describing it, but the fact that it's almost like, oh, hang on a second, I've got to revise this. And it's almost, you know, re, it's, it's almost more like reality was wrong. I wasn't wrong, but reality's wrong and I've got to track reality. Uh, but it's a strange thing. And so I think just recognizing the significance of, of feeling and of emotion and of and, and the influence those things have on perception. And also the significance of the fact that everyone pretends as if those things don't exist. Everyone pretends as if they don't matter. You know, because basically our only task is to square up our perception with reality. That's the thing, mm-hmm. is to think about what's true. That's what yeah, that's the thing too, is that what's the importance about thought? Well, the important thing about thought, the important characteristic is that it match some metric, something that's being paid attention, some, something that everyone agrees on is important, or most people agree on is important outside, but that the, the thought doesn't have significance beyond that for the experience of the individual, and that the experience of the individual doesn't have significance beyond itself, that it doesn't have significance for the well-being of the individual mm-hmm. or the physical health of the individual necessarily. Yeah, and that's where German New Medicine and really the integration that we are doing with our Ever Better Thought technology is, is its true integration of the mind and the body, you know? So for so long, we've divided the mind and the body and we've got, you know, the mind people, the psychology, psychiatry people, and then there are the people who work on the physical body, the medical doctors, and that the middle ground there has been, they speak different languages. They perceive the body in completely different ways and there's very little overlap and there's very little integration um, between them all. But when you realize that it really is all the mind, the mind, the psyche is the number one determining factor and all of the biology, the, you know, the deep parts of the brain, the cellular level of, you know, what your tissue cells are doing that all is integrated, it's all directed by what's going on in your mind. These immeasurable, ineffable, hard to even talk about things called thoughts are running the show 
and it's communicating to this ancient part of you that just keeps everything running. And so getting these these things out in the open, talking about them and trying to describe them in ways that most people can understand is part of what we like to do, is helping you to get in tune with the whole whole of who you are, your entire experience. This thing called you, which is the part that's listening to me right now, but then the also the thing called you that's beating your heart and growing your toenails and doing all of the other functions and getting Getting those two things in rapport, understanding in a bigger context how what you're thinking about, how you're feeling. You know, some examples I wanted to give about belief establishment. And when you decide, when you have a belief, when you decide that the world is a certain way, that people are a certain way, that you as an individual are a certain way because of something that happens in a moment in time and how that can set you up for this lifelong conflict or what people term chronic disease or like we talked about a couple episodes ago like fibromyalgia and having say you know maybe you were 10 years old and you are getting you know it's recess or you're um, in PE class and they're picking teams for kickball and your best friend is the leader of the one team and you're like you just know for a fact they're gonna pick me I know they're gonna pick me I know I'm not really that good at kickball but she's my best friend so I just know she's gonna pick me and you're confidently standing there knowing she was gonna pick you and then she went with the better player she didn't choose you because you were a friend she and, and in that moment you were caught off guard. And yes, is that a cataclysmic, horrible, you know, tragedy, trauma that is overt and obvious? Well, no, it's kind of subtle. And But in that moment, that being caught off guard, that for a certain individual could have been a conflict shock, could have induced just feelings of, oh my goodness, maybe even my friends don't like me or they wouldn't choose me or how many meanings, How what beliefs could that, that child establish about themselves? I'm not a good athlete. No one's going to pick me. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And then that belief goes on to stay active in in their mind, in, in how they see themselves and how something like a belief like that can perpetuate and stay around. And once they start believing that, because beliefs are self-confirming in nature, they start seeing more and more evidence of that. And then again, on the cellular level, if the conflict was um, alarming or polarizing enough in that minute to induce a conflict shock, that that child could have experienced um, changes at the cellular level in her muscles because self-devaluation, you know, can affect the bones, the joints, the muscular system. And so she's you know, making, having changes in her actual muscle tissue because she's in the act of devaluing herself. And so throughout her life, she may, you know, get over it and and have better perspective sometimes about herself or build her self-confidence in other arenas. But this may begin some type of a track, some type of a trigger, some type of a lifelong belief that if she goes on believing it without conscious awareness, which for vast majority, the vast majority of us, we never become aware of these beliefs that are directing our life. I mean, I know for the first 25 years of my life, I, I was being directed and led by things I believed about myself, the world, and other people that absolutely did not improve my experience. My like What it was like to be me was not improved by believing these things, but I just thought they were true because I had evidence they were true based on my personal, individual life experiences. And so in thinking about that and realizing that those beliefs getting them out in front of you, realizing what you're believing about yourself, realizing when these 
things could have been set up, especially if you are listening to this and you're trying to wrap your head around GNM and maybe you've got some, you know, some things you're trying to heal. Maybe you're already in the healing phase of, of a cancer process. Maybe you're in the conflict active. You're trying to become aware of this thing. You're like, all right, this makes sense to me. I want to do what it takes to become aware of what's causing my conflict analyzing your beliefs and that's one of the things I do with the clients that I work with is what are you believing about your condition what are you believing about your body what are you believing about your diagnosis what are you believing about your prospects for healing what do you believe about you about healing in general what do you believe about healing for yourself in this situation what do you what do you believe and how powerful those beliefs are directing you unconsciously in the moments where you're not thinking about beliefs your beliefs are still directing you And so that's where the work of bringing conscious awareness to what you're believing when, and especially in the pocket of uh, what specific conflict is the initiator of the adaptations that your body tissues are making, all writing out and becoming so clear and aware of what beliefs are directing you is such a powerful, I can't even emphasize how powerful an exercise that is in getting through in resolving conflicts, getting to the healing phase, and then even realizing, oh, what do I believe about healing? What do I believe about pain? What do I, you know, what am I looking at moving forward? All of that matters so much. I think also what you believe about yourself is significant too, because I think that that, that's one thing about people that, and I think when you first start getting into this stuff, if this belief, if it's really conceptual for you, okay, beliefs, okay, my health, okay, a connection between the two, I got it, you know. Um, beliefs, like you said, it's not something that like we tend to think of beliefs. They only exist when we sit down and do exercises or listen to podcasts that are about beliefs, but that's not so. They're constantly active. They're activities in which we're engaged. And if you want to know kind of like what you're, you know, and so the thing about what you were saying before about beliefs about health and healing um, is it, it may not be immediately evident that beliefs about yourself are hugely significant about your own capacity to be healthy because I mean what if you have beliefs about say success and about an inability or an unworthiness or undeservedness you know you always come up just a little bit short well if your major project in life right now is healing or surviving and you constantly believe that you're always coming up short that's significant that's relevant it's not a health belief but it's a belief that's going to affect your health you know what I'm saying and recognizing that because that's the thing for a lot of people is that a lot of things are possible for others but not possible for them a lot of people, um, you know, there are other people who believe that, you know, you can't get over certain things, but they themselves, it doesn't apply to them because they're winners. They just, they have such a, a feeling of being exceptional that it, the, the unresourceful belief they have about disease, say, just doesn't stick to them, you know, because they've got a kind of almost like a Teflon belief that, you know, it's a buffer between their experience and what they believe to be true about that thing. And so if you want to know what you're believing, it's really interesting in this moment in time to pay attention to what you're thinking. What does what you're thinking right now? Because that's all it means to believe something, to say that you believe something is to say that in your personal history, you have thought a certain number of thoughts on a related subject in a similar way. I've thought a certain number of similarly inclined thoughts on the subject of health or finances or you know disease or relationships, whatever. I've thought a certain number of thoughts that pertain to that subject that tend to go in a certain direction, that tend to be associated with a certain experience, that tend to have a certain kind of flavor to them. That's what it means right now to say, oh, I believe that, um, you know, I'm going to die of this. I, I believe that I can't make it. I believe that 
um, health is pretty much something that either you have or you don't. You've thought a certain number of things, like for example, I don't know, well, you know, they're just unlucky, or oh, that's just genetics, or oh, yeah, it's this very rare thing, or oh, there's no reason for it, or oh, they don't know, we don't know, it's unknowable, it just happened, it's just, it's just bad luck. Those little thoughts that you think here and there that kind of bubble up, like you've thought a bunch of those, and that's why you feel now in this moment in time you believe whatever it is that you do. And so if you'll watch what you're thinking now, that generally tells you something pretty informative and fairly reliable about what you have been thinking before. Because for most people, if they're not thinking consciously and intentionally, you know, um, usually what they're thinking in a moment has a lot to do with what they have been thinking in moments similar to this one in their past. And so you'll pay attention to the thoughts that kind of bubble up for you because they'll tell you something about what you believe. Pay attention also to what you do, you know. Oh, and by the way, too, the, rel- the way that you relate to beliefs tells you something about what you believe about beliefs. So you don't believe they really matter that much. You believe they're just based on reality. You know, if you believe that your beliefs are just um, commentaries on reality that you can't do anything about, you'll tolerate a lot of beliefs that you won't tolerate or put up with. It'll make sense to keep around a lot of bad-feeling beliefs that it wouldn't make sense to keep around if you believed that beliefs were more or less resourceful, useful tools for creating experiences and behaviors and realities. That, you know, that's different. That's a different evaluative criteria than believing that, well, I just believe things because they're true. I believe things because reality suggests itself to be this way. Um, that's a different class. I mean, a smart, intelligent person will tolerate beliefs that that smart, intelligent person would not tolerate if they thought of beliefs and evaluated them in terms of, uh, you know, their usefulness as creative tools of experience and reality. Yeah, like I love that concept that we have of beliefs as tools. Because when you think of your beliefs as tools, not as just what's true. I used to believe that that my beliefs were based on facts of reality. Well, I believe this because it's true. Because of life experiences that I've had have proven to me that XYZ is absolutely true. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't believe it, right? When you start to realize that beliefs are tools, beliefs will, you know, they, they are they serving you? That is just a different way to look at beliefs. And some people might have a problem with that. I mean, I, I'll t- tell you the truth. I had a problem with that when I was first presented with the idea that my beliefs, um, that they weren't this kind of rock solid, absolute truth of the universe. Because that's how I experienced my beliefs as absolute truth of the universe. And of course, I believe things that are true. I wouldn't believe things that weren't, that aren't true, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think for people... When, if you if that's you and if you're like beliefs aren't malleable beliefs are just reality just start to see how that belief operates in your life watch yourself and and you just start to open up just a little bit and you start to see how beliefs are operating in your life you start to see that beliefs are self-fulfilling in nature. Beliefs are magnets for evidence. When you believe something, you are filtering the world. You are seeing the world through a certain lens that causes you to perceive the things you see in a certain way. And very rarely do we come across things in our everyday life that change our beliefs. You've probably seen one of those funny memes on Facebook you know, where people say, oh, yes, that argument made me absolutely change all of my beliefs 
thank you so much for posting it. Well, no, <laughs> we hang around people that either believe what we already believe and we look at things on Facebook that confirm our beliefs and we like that because we like to have our beliefs confirmed or we rail against and get mad at and yell at the people who are absolutely, we think, we think of people that don't believe what we believe as absolutely crazy. That's what I used to think that the people that don't believe what I believe, those people are absolutely crazy. But when you start to see, hmm, no, maybe those people aren't crazy. Maybe they've had life experiences that have caused them to see the world in a certain way that seems very true for them. Hmm, isn't that interesting? And so that ability for me was huge in just kind of softening up that hard line I took on how real, how true, how factual all of my beliefs were, and then started to say, huh, maybe there are things I'm believing that aren't really serving me, and that I really can start to see beliefs as tools and swap them out for ones that are more resourceful. And that's what you'll see all throughout GNM is it's, it's resourceful beliefs about your body. And it's grounded in biology. It's not, it's not simply, oh, a really good way to think about it. Because even, you know, even before I came across GNM and learning about the, you know, the placebo effect and the nocebo effect and the power that our thoughts have on things, it's like, well, hell, even if it's not actually making, um, it, it seems to make some kind of difference. Even if it's all, quote, in my mind, at least it's improving my experience. But when, but now that we know GNM and now that we know the five biological laws and you realize that no it's not just a coincidence it's not just a here let me let me just make it seem really nice in my mind even though the reality is actually bad it's your experience of what it's like to be you your cells are responding to it you your body is biologically adapting to states based on the information the way that you're perceiving the world the way in which you are believing so i hope that this discussion of beliefs has opened your mind a little bit and caused you to be inspired to look at your thoughts, to look at your beliefs. What do you believe about health and healing? What do you believe about your potential possibilities for healing? What do, what do you believe about just yourself as a person? Do you believe that things work out for you and that, you know, your story is going to end well? Or do you, you know, do you have this belief that, you know, nothing ever really works out for me? Realize that that belief However off the record it may seem, however private it may seem in the corner of your mind where it resides, it is exerting an influence over everything about what it's like to be you. So this conscious believing thing is a very wonderful skill, and it's a skill you can learn. Uh, we are coming out with a new mini course next week called Beyond Belief, and it is a guide to conscious believing. So if you are interested in you know, changing your relationship to belief, starting to believe things that are more resourceful. And if it seems really like, oh, I don't think I can believe that, you know, my body is, is perfect and doing the right thing and healing, that's really a tough, you know, that's a, a tough pill for me to swallow. If that's the case, there is a stepwise manner in which you can go about the easy way of believing. Because trying to believe something you don't believe is trying to, you know, lift a weight that you can't lift. There is a way to build up to it, though. And so I'm really excited to, to share that with everybody. Anything else you want to add? I don't think so. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so very much for listening. If you are interested in connecting with us for coaching, 
for information about our courses, please visit my website, drmelissacell.com, drmelissacell, or everbetterlife.com as well. And we will see you again, talk with you again on our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.